Hi, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Jay Coakley. I'm an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, and also the executive director of the Center for Critical Sports Studies there. And Jay, it's an incredible privilege and honor to be with you. We've known one another for a long time without having met up very often. We haven't been in touch probably for 20 years. That's true. It is really great to see you. Good to see you too. And quite apart from that, uh, I should say that long before I met you, your work was inspirational to me. So first to kick off in whatever football code we're, we're talking about is to ask you about what is dynamizing, concerning, preoccupying, interesting you these days? Well, there's actually two streams of thought that mm-hmm. that uh, I've been having. One, I'm revising a textbook that I first started writing in 1975. So <laughs> this is a long project. This is the 14th edition. So I'm focused on all of the uh, significant changes that have occurred in sports over the past mm-hmm. few years. And uh, those are being driven by commercialization. Uh, they're being driven by media, changes in the media, how people consume media content. But then on the other hand, I'm concerned with global affairs and what's going on with some of the the conflicts that the U.S. is connected with and uh, and also global climate change that is having a major impact on uh, not just how individuals are living their lives, but it has an impact on migration patterns, on border crossings, on all of the political issues that go along with that. And the United States seems to be one of the countries that is in the middle of that. And and it's causing concern because people are suffering in the process. I couldn't agree more, Jay. And those things are also somewhat connected. If you think of what's happening in Ukraine, Russia is being exiled from more and more sports. If you think right. about the environment in baseball, and this is particularly true in the Colorado, more and more home runs are being hit. And because the ball is staying in the air longer and going further in many fields. And of course, uh, Games like cricket are seeing whole day's play abandoned due to air quality in countries like India with you know massive industrialization. There are countless other examples we could give. Long-distance athletes dropping dead or having shortened lives as a consequence of extreme sports of that kind, seeing their bodies materially affected by contamination. Um, the whole world of skiing being compromised, pro skiing and so on. So I think environmental change and geopolitical conflicts and sports have, in a sense, always been connected, but maybe never more so than now on the environmental front. Yeah? Oh, definitely. And and that that, uh, involves not only the formal institutionalized uh, sports, 
but also informal sports and recreational sports as well. So people in Los Angeles during the hot months can't play outside for uh, because of the pollution and because of the heat. And it affects young people. They end up staying indoors, sitting on their smartphones longer. That affects general health patterns, uh, obesity and overweight, and a number of things. So you're right. These things come together in ways that, that we really need to pay more attention to. And, and in my own writing, I know that uh, I need a new chapter on the environment and sport and, and climate change. And it's hard because I have page limits <laughs> to add a new chapter. I'd have, to, I'd have to scratch one of the other chapters, and that's a tough decision to make. And before we started recording, we were talking about this fantastic textbook, and I was saying to you that I've got the 13th edition, so I think that's the, the, the latest one in print. It's a remarkable document in its brilliance and its depth, but also its pedagogic acuity and applicability. You've just told us that you started writing it 40 years ago. Well, no, 50 years ago. 50 years, almost 50, yeah. <laughs> I keep trying to make myself younger than I am. Can you, without having to go through every edition, what are some of the big changes that you've witnessed in the world of sports and sociology that have influenced what the book covers? Yeah, I think uh, it's just the the growth of sport. It's It's visibility within various cultures. It's cultural significance uh, around the globe and uh, and the commercialization processes that have driven it uh, to expand. And uh, I think that that just for people who are younger than than you and I, uh, if they look over the past decade, a lot of the major changes that have existed in in uh, the uh, professional and semi-professional sports and high and in the U.S. Uh, high school and college sports, they've been driven by commercialization issues. And now uh, some of the changes are also being driven by the voices of athletes, which have become louder and louder in response to the fact that that commercial factors have been the only factors considered in the way sport has expanded and changed and athletes have been marginalized in this process and hurt in some ways so uh, of course the professional athletes in the in the big uh, successful uh, fixtures and leagues around the world have have made more money but that doesn't mean that they've had more control over the conditions of their participation mm. in those sports as athletes. And so they're concerned as well. And if we go back to 75, Jay, that's not long after the inspirational efforts of black athletes from the United States at the Olympics. I'm thinking of Lee Evans, but also obviously of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, but others as well and the Harry Edwards campaigns, and also when, I guess it was the Oakland A's and some other teams were anti the Vietnam War or had some players that were 
Right. There was an activism, and then it seemed to diminish, or so it seems to me, in 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 association football, soccer, there were a few leftists involved in Germany in particular. There were guys involved in opposition to the dictatorship in Brazil uh, and the dictatorship in Argentina. But, but there wasn't a huge amount of activism after that extraordinary moment in 68. Right. And, yeah, it, it seems to diminish a bit. And now it's back. Is that have I got that right? Would you say? Yeah, I think that. Uh, well, Harry Edwards has a presentation where he talks about the ebb and flow of athlete activism over the past uh, half century, and uh, and as he points out, whenever athletes take an activist stance, there's always a backlash, and that backlash quashes uh much of the activism and uh and i think that we've gone through two or three of those cycles in the past uh 50 years and we've gone through one recently so uh, black lives matter protests in the united states and around the world in at least in parts of europe uh, were occurring, and then there was backlash to that, including our President Trump's uh, comments about athletes who were doing that and saying, let's get those son of a bitches off the field. And so, uh, and, and that, of course, motivated others who thought in the same way to make similar statements, and it caused owners professional franchise, uh, team franchise owners and league officials to be worried that they were going to start losing fans if athlete activism remained publicly visible. So, uh, but I think this, this recent one uh, has stayed alive at least in kind of a uh, undercover uh uh, manifestation where the athletes now are communicating through the internet, through email, through their their communication systems, and their awareness, I think, has been perpetuated. And uh, and so I would suspect that their activism is going to be easier to revive in the future, and we shall see how. Uh, the sport leaders around the world respond to that. Respond to that. So. I mean, here's a question. How many owners of National Football League teams are registered Republicans? 99%? Well, it's, it's up there. It's up and... there. <laughs> How many leaders on Professional Golf Association Tour are registered Republicans? Quite a lot. Major League Baseball... Quite a lot. I mean, these are, uh, in many cases, reactionary multimillionaires who get the development costs of their athletes met by, in many cases, public universities and taxpayers, right. sometimes private universities, and in many cases get their stadia built uh, through the public purse. So, Jay, for socialists like myself, this is surely a triumph. This is socialism generating pro sports in the United States, but I don't really see a payoff. 
Well, yeah, not not for uh, any of the people who are subsidizing those. Uh, not for any of those people who are subsidizing, <laughs> who are now billionaires. I mean, we used to call them multimillionaires, but now they're billionaires. And in fact, uh, some of the big financial advice companies in the United States are are actually trying to sell team ownership to private equity companies. And uh, so we're not talking about the old family ownership that existed a half century ago. We're moving towards more corporate ownership and eventually, I suspect, to private equity ownership as franchises become worth so much money that the, uh, you know, it's impossible for anybody other than a multi, multi-billionaire to buy them. So what's going to happen is that private equity will come in and buy, and who knows what's going to happen with management uh, and their orientations and perspectives when that occurs. That would lead to some major changes, I would predict. Well, if that happens, and if media ownership is ever any guide, that also means asset stripping. And, That's right. Uh, the quality of experience for fans and for players can alter. Plus, uh, the media themselves can get frozen out because a lot of these institutions don't want to sell the rights to TV companies or cable stations or even Amazon or or Apple for coverage. They want to cover it themselves and sell it directly to us, right? So That's that, right. That could really be a big a big change. So that's a, a dramatic transformation. Can I ask what this has meant for you yourself, Jay, uh, when, from when you were an athlete to your time as a fan, to your time as a sociologist, to your time as a critic? Do you have any different feelings now about watching the Rose Bowl or the Super Bowl or the World Series or the World Cup of women's soccer? You know, do, has this transformed your experience in, in any sense? Yeah, that I, these changes for sure. for sure. And I and I won't go through my sport biography here, but uh, I had played uh, uh, basketball in particular through college, had a nice scholarship, and uh, but I grew up I grew up in Chicago as the oldest of six kids in an Irish Catholic family, and uh, and I know that that my sisters and brother did not have the same kinds of experiences I had, uh, you know, my sisters, it was pre title nine. Mm. And so I, I observed things going on growing up in Chicago uh, in sport related to race and gender and social class in particular. But I didn't, I didn't make that a central thought process in in my life until I graduated from college and went to graduate school at the University of Notre Dame. And it was the first time in my educational experience that I had a chance to not be in sports and to observe what was going on. And, and that started in 1966. 
So when Harry Edwards wrote his book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete, and Jack Scott uh, wrote his book, The Athletic Revolution, and a few sociologists were starting to study sport at that particular time, I started to focus on what was going on at Notre Dame and what was going on in college sports and wanted to do my PhD dissertation on that. And my advisor laughed when I suggested it and told me to pick something serious. So uh, I ended up studying the identificational priorities of Black Catholic priests in, in around 1968 during the civil rights movements in the United States, which was a very interesting it's dissertation yeah. be, because many of the Black Catholic priests in the North gave identificational priority to their race, whereas in the South, they, they gave it to their vocation, their religious vocation. And so there, was, uh, there were two different kinds of being a black Catholic priest at that particular time. But related to my sport participation, uh, the college I went to in Denver, uh, I chose because it was racially desegregated. Mm. And, uh, uh, and it was being coached by someone who had great contacts with black athletes in the Midwest and the upper South Midwest states. And, uh, Joe B. Hall was his name. He played at Kentucky, later coached there, won national championships. But he started out at Regis, what is now Regis University in Denver. And so I learned all sorts of things related to race while I played there. So my point here is that as I got older and as I started studying and writing about sport, I watched it in completely different ways. And and followed what I call the deeper game associated with sports, the things going on behind the scenes and uh, things that were issues and controversies. And when I when I taught uh, my first course on that, that's what I labeled the course sport and society issues and controversies. And it was a seminar where I could pick students and. And I had 15 students, a very diverse group, by the way, in northern Arizona, Northern Arizona University. And uh, we read Harry Edwards' book and Jack Scott's book. And I asked them after the first uh, three or four weeks when we read those books, what are the questions that you have about sports? And we pulled them all together. There were 12 questions. And those were the chapter titles for the first edition of my sport and society book. So it was student generated. And I became then absolutely committed to teaching uh, in this area. And I watched sports less and less for sports in themselves. I was much more concerned with what was happening to athletes, how sports were changing how power relations were changing in sports. And now I have a difficult time sitting through an entire game. Uh, I do so in a few cases because my wife, Nancy, uh, watches sports because she runs a pool for a lot of our friends. 
And so, uh, so I'll I'll do that just to hang out with Nancy and and share her experiences. But I'm not interested too much in watching sports anymore. You know, I I love the skill part of it, and I love watching those skills. But uh, I know too much in in many cases uh, to to really be a traditional fan. This is one of the reasons, Jay, why I like when I live near the ocean to watch people swimming and surfing mm-hmm. because, of course, there are commodities involved, there are gender and race inequalities involved, but just seeing bodily skill at work and interacting with other aspects of nature is beautiful and I don't have to worry about all the goddamn advertising and so on. One of the things that's become so significant in U.S. sports since I stopped living there is gambling uh, because all these professional associations basically didn't allow it 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And now it's a core part of their business, isn't it, in many cases? Yeah. I mean, even five, I mean, the the big legal change occurred uh, with the Supreme Court ruling in 2018. So what has happened since then is that 38 states have changed the law so that uh, online betting is legal. And that has generated uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for not just the betting platforms and their owners, but also for uh, professional sport teams who who now sell adver- the media then sell advertising to the betting platforms and uh, and then the news changes about sports they start giving you point spreads and over and unders and other kinds of information that would influence prop you know proposition betting during a game. And so uh, even some sport venues now have places where you can place bets on the game while you're watching. So that has had a major uh, impact on the way some people view sports. And uh, and it has created, you know, billion dollar kinds of betting amounts on certain events. And, so, and addiction and impoverishment, family breakup, mental illness, suicide. One of the big things that's happened in the English Premier League is that if you're watching a game on television, uh, the banner advertising, of course, is electronic and it alters depending on where you are. But in many cases, it lists betting firms that are not domiciled in Britain. They're domiciled elsewhere, but they're advertising to Chinese folks because, of course, this is illegal in China. But they can see it on the television, so they know how to contact this company based in who knows where and bet. Yeah. So there are dramatic changes. One of the things that's always been there over these 50 years, Jay, and before, is so-called doping in sports, something that you've written about not just in the textbook context, but in your many research articles on many topics, you know, such as neoliberalism, for example. You've also touched on drugs and sport. And I wonder if you could take us there for a moment and tell us what the story is, as far as you're concerned, what the issues are 
both historically and here and now? Yeah. Well, I mean, historically, there's there's always been an interest among athletes to find some kinds of performance enhancing substance that that would help them compete and uh, and train, by the way. So uh, but nobody really spent a whole lot of time studying that until beginning in about the 1960s, when we became more and more aware of of the widespread use of anabolic steroids. And uh, so the the whole issue of doping then became an issue within sports itself in terms of enforcement, in terms of what they called the integrity of the game, uh, the spirit of the game. And uh, they wanted to make sure that people continued to believe in what I call the great sport myth, that sport is essentially pure and good, and anybody who participates in it shares in that purity and goodness. And uh, and take drug taking was contradicting that particular belief, and so leaders in sport came up with enforcement procedures uh, to at least give fans and general spectators the impression that they were watching uh, performances that were unaided by various kinds of substances. And they used the term doping, by the way, purposely because they wanted to give fans the idea that this was a criminal action and that the players had to be dealt with severely and that drug testing, even though it was invasive and uh, and ignored the privacy of, of human beings, was justified. So we have this whole terminology revolving around the word doping and dopers and, uh, and, you know, dope testing and anti-doping and all of these things. I use performance enhancing substances because I want to separate what's going on in sport from what's going on on the streets and, you know, with people who are mainlining heroin, this is when you're taking anabolic steroids, it's, it's a little bit different. So, uh, so anyway, the, the issue has become even more significant now than in the past. And, but we don't hear about it so much. Athletes are, have learned so much about, how to use various kinds of substances and avoid positive tests, that substance use is is quite common. And when I lived in Colorado Springs for 34 years, I did a lot of work at the uh, uh, Olympic Training Center and Olympic and Paralympic Training Center now. And I knew a lot of the athletes there. They took my course when I offered it at night I also uh, did work with Richard Lapchick uh, from the United States to offer a course on the Olympic Training Center campus for people who wanted to finish degrees and needed course credit and so oh, on. So, yeah. so as I did that, I would go to 
a big supplement warehouse with yeah. some of the athletes and watched what they bought. And they would buy a couple hundred dollars worth of various kinds of supplements that they were use, that they would use legal supplements, by the way, that they would use to enhance their performance. They also, after I got to know them, started making disclosures about how they were using illegal or banned substances and and how they were getting around testing positive. And so that whole process uh, still exists. And as the athletes have learned more and more about how drugs clear their systems, when they clear their systems, which ones clear them most rapidly, uh, they continue to take them and avoid positive tests like Lance Armstrong did for years and years. And Prof. J, one of the things that disturbs me is that there is perfectly legal drug addiction going on in sports, and it's called, mm -hmm. you know, um, anti-pain drug use. Right. Uh, our fr mutual friend Jim Mackay has that wonderful book from 30 years ago now, No, no Pain, No Gain. And drugs that mask pain and pain is a sign you should stop doing something, not keep doing it, right? Drugs right. that mask pain mean that players play when they're hurt. They injure themselves more fully with implications for later in life, and they can become habituated, if not addicted, to these drugs. So my big beef, speaking as a vegetarian, is <laughs> my big cabbage is with this incredible moralism, this criminalization that you've described through the use of the word doping. You've made that case brilliantly. Not being applied to the monumental use of drugs by mm -hmm. medical experts on athletes in high school, in college, and in pro sports. Yeah, and some of those drugs now are really powerful. I, and I'm not talking about the opioids. I'm, I'm talking about Toradol and some of the other anti-inflammatories that, that do damage to you uh, relatively rapidly if you're taking them regularly during a day and during a long period of time. And uh, some of the athletes now have learned enough about those side effects that they're trying to resist the teams that are telling them, and team doctors, by the way, that are telling them, oh, take this Toradol. And, uh, and we don't know about the use of, of various kinds of, of, uh, pain deadeners, Novocaine, and, and other things that are administered with needles. I mean, that happened to me as a college student. And in a, in a sport program that, that, you know, wasn't one of the main ones in the country, but uh, a good team. And when I had a bone bruise in my heel, they put a needle between my heel bone and the rest of my foot with Novocaine, and I played with it that way. And uh, it deadened about a foot of of my leg and and about twelve inches of my leg and foot, and it felt real funny. And I didn't do it again, 
And then I learned that uh, people who are doing that and taking cortisone in in uh, various joints and so on, that it's deteriorating joints and uh, and bone. So uh, so that has gone on in the past. We don't know the extent to which various kinds of drugs are used right now to mask pain, but I do know that half of the NFL players every week go out on the field for a game in pain or with things masking that pain. And if it's too much at halftime, uh, the pain, they'll mask it again or take a drug. And uh, I'm thinking of uh, other forms of this, uh, the most spectacular case being Lionel Messi, who for genetic reasons was never going to be more than about five feet, two or three. Right. And as a very young man was clearly astonishingly gifted. And so Barcelona, who brought him over from Argentina to Spain when he was very young, gave him whole growth hormone treatments for years. Yeah. Not having a clue about what this would mean when he was 45, 50, 60, right? Doesn't matter. Right. They don't care. So right. there are those. And, and that, by the way, is an issue in the United States now because uh, drug testing is very difficult to do on minors. And what is happening is that parents who think that they have the next Lionel Messi uh, as a son or a daughter uh, are mostly sons, by the way. Uh, they're looking for things that will help them excel and move through the pipeline, up the pipeline in their particular sport. And they avoid testing because the parents don't give permission to have their child's blood drawn for a test so or urine taken. So uh, what's happening is that minors are using some of those drugs that may have long-term negative effects. We don't know. And on the drug issue, Jay, something else you've published on a lot is is gender. And inevitably these days, I think about the experience, the oppression of Casta Semenya, mm -hmm. a brilliant South African runner whose status as a woman has been problematized to the point where she is obliged to go onto a regime of drugs, right, in order to diminish her level of testosterone. And some of this goes back many decades to when we were children and uh, the United States always claiming that women Soviet Union shot put throwers and discus throwers were actually men. You'll remember this. Right, right. And all the testing that went on. And that sort of hysteria about what's a woman seems to have been turbocharged in the last years, both because of Ms. Semenya, but also because of trans issues. Right. Which are hugely complex, it seems to me. And as with the drug question, where I am, I'm angry at corporate institutions and universities and doctors much more than I am at Balco and Barry Bonds. Right. I am worried at the moment about the way in which trans athletes are being treated at the same time as I worry about the situation of young women 
or people who regard themselves as biological women who feel as though a career path that was made possible for them is now being compromised in some way. How are you going to address this in the 14th edition of Sporting Society? Yeah, I think it is the most difficult issue that I'll deal with. I haven't gotten to that point yet where I'm actually... (laughs) I've collected I've collected dozens and dozens of articles uh, from from the biology of it, biochemistry of it, all the way through the the physiology of it, and uh, and the the thing that gets me is that because it's now a political issue in the United States, that we have we have heard all sorts of questionable information and uh and the thing that that strikes me is that in most of the states where legislation is now being passed that bans trans women from participating in sports the people who are passing that legislation do not know one case in their state of a trans person a trans woman in particular, playing on a team and, according to them, uh, robbing a natural-born female of a place on that team and uh, and robbing them of scholarships. So, you know, I haven't heard of a scholarship being robbed from anybody by a trans athlete. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but it is minuscule in terms of uh, its impact. But uh, but the whole binary approach to gender is so deeply grounded in many cultures. Uh, and in the United States, it's tied to the book of Genesis and to the extent that that we have people who are seeing uh, a, a binary definition of, of, of sex as having moral status, you know, they feel morally obliged to ban people who don't fit into either of the binary boxes. And, and this relates to the Republican Party's cynical uh, use of sex, sexuality, and race as part of its cephalogical campaign strategies uh, dating back to uh, the end of Jim Crow, which they're Mm -hmm. also trying to bring back. But outside the United States, Jay, I've seen almost all the big international sporting associations get themselves in incredible binds over this, in cycling, in track and field, in cricket, they're changing their rules all the time. I mean, I'm gathering material on this too. And you must have seen this about every six months. One of these international unions or associations says, well, we've done some more studies. We've talked to some more scientists. And now we've decided X instead of Y. Forgive me for using chromosomatic language. But <laughs> it is it, it, apart from U.S. cultural politics, it is something where we're seeing massive consternation internationally. And it's not just from politicians, it's from athletes and athlete bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's going to go away. I foresee a future in in X 
time when we get something like the Paralympics or the gay games and there is a sort of separate model. Uh, if that happens, I think it will be the, the product of great struggle and disagreement and it may not come to pass. But somewhere along the line, there needs to be a way of finding a, a, a means through the thicket because for political and religious reasons, but also for, for athlete reasons, people are going to keep on about this. It's not going to go away in its current yeah. situation, even though we're talking about such small numbers of people. But it also shows the incredible obsession with the idea that sports is about the purity of the body and the body as the ultimate arbiter of quality. That this is the one yeah. where you can say, of three days, Ben Johnson ran the 100 metres faster than anybody else, right? It, that is the special quality of the numericization of sport, right? Mm -hmm. That fantasy. Yeah. This is the fastest horse. This is the longest long jumper, etc. Yeah. And, and that approach, by the way, gives men a free ticket uh, in, in certain ways. You know, if you have a hormone, uh, a unique hormone characteristic that leads you to grow to be seven feet, six inches tall, and uh, and you play basketball, nobody is going to say that it's unfair because of what existed inside your body when you were born. Whereas with Castor Semenya, that's exactly what they were saying. So in other words, anything that exists inside a man's body that enables that man to perform well in sport to a point of excellence and to a point of winning medals or whatever, that means that he's just more of a man. Whereas for a woman, uh, if they excel because of something that they're born with, then that that raises questions about whether they're really a woman. So we have two two approaches here uh, that that kind of fit with with the general cultural acceptance of, of the of the sex and gender binary and that it's a non-negotiable issue. So, uh, so yeah, I agree with you. This is going to remain a tough issue. And as more, as more people start to question their own sexuality, and I've seen this, I've seen, I have three granddaughters, by the way, who, who are, uh, each one of them have friends who have gone through a transition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, and they don't see this as a problem. Now, whether they're going to end up being in charge of things at some point in the future where they have a different approach to the whole meaning of gender and sexuality, uh, that's that's a time when when we'll confront this in a more rational way. Yeah, we can. And, um, Jay, I've got a couple more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to throw okay. it to you to add anything you wish. Okay. The first one is this. When I started reading sociology of sport and sport history, everything seemed to be functionalist and everything seemed to be good old boys and some good old girls who'd been jocks and loved sports and had no critical element. 
that was dominant, I think. Right. Albeit some people like Jack Scott, uh, like um, uh, other other critics that you mentioned, notably Harry Edwards. Your work stood out from the beginning as someone who had been a jock, but who was prepared to be critical. Was it tough in those early days to be in the field of kinesiology, human kinetics, sports sociology, sports science, and have that critical eye that was so acute? Did you run into difficulties over that? You know, I... I ran into a little bit of resistance here and there, uh, but uh, I'm because of my teaching experience and because of how I grew up, I've learned to be very tactful in in how I criticize things, and and I will relate it to people's experiences, which are hard to deny. And, you know, I, I just don't make a critical statement without, without tying it to the experience, lived experiences of, of people. And so that's part of my, my approach. So I haven't run into problems there. I've run into problems teaching about gender. I, I left my position at Northern Arizona University because the Board of Regents Member, one of the Board of Regents members found out that I was using things from a book called Sisterhood is Powerful in one of my courses, and they wanted to know if I was a pervert trying to, uh, trying to connect with women uh, in my classes by using feminist things. Now, you've got to remember, this was 1971, so uh, 1970 and 71, so that was a problem, and I ended up leaving that university because basically uh, uh, I was being uh, sanctioned by the president of the university and the board of regents. So that's when I moved to Colorado. That's that's but, a bit more important than having running into a few functionalists, <laughs> right? But uh, but I was always had a problem with functionalism and. Uh, and in graduate school, I knew what the alternatives were, and I was certainly open to those. And uh, so I started raising critical questions from the get-go mm. in my focus on, on the sociology of sport. But I always tried to explain them in ways that, that tied to the humanity aspect of sport. And, uh, and that, was, that was successful. For the most part, the, the people at the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, did have a problem when Richard Lapschick and I started offering these courses on the uh, Olympic Training Center campus. And one of the uh, people there had read some of my stuff that was critical of sport, and they actually banned me from teaching those courses at the Olympic Training Center. So that was a problem. So that was the only problem. I never ran into a problem in academia in my sport courses, but at the Olympic Training Center, I did. Good God. I mean, I'm, I, uh, we're, I'm going to change this to a, 
uh, an audio only file and so it'll be you know no video but uh, people will have seen me won't have seen me giving a look that you saw of complete astonishment at your story from Arizona but also your story from the US Olympic Committee and I shouldn't be astonished at all I shouldn't be astonished at all because what happened to you 50 years ago is happening to people now Definitely. I have individuals Jay that I'm recording with who are young faculty untenured in certain states Colorado isn't one of them who've asked me not to ask any questions about anything that could be deemed political Mm -hmm. they're afraid of being sanctioned and so on so um prof my, my last question before throwing things to you is to ask you about how you know the things you know well uh in addition to my personal experiences uh i'm a voracious consumer of research um, on sport-related topics, but by the way, I, I've taught a number of other courses. So from introductory sociology to sociology of aging, popular culture, social psych, and so on, race and ethnicity, gender and uh, society. So uh, so I have this general kind of a background mm -hmm. for looking at sport from a number of different angles and perspectives. And, and that has certainly helped uh, through the years. So, uh, but I sympathize with people I'm talking with right now about what you've just mentioned. They, they can't talk about certain things without feeling that maybe a student's recording this, maybe it's going to end up at the local newspaper, uh, in the hands of somebody who wants to make an issue out of, uh, propagandizing our our students with liberal thoughts, and uh, and so they want to get out of those states. And by the way, this is having an impact on how uh, the 14th edition is being prepared. I've got to think about is there is is there something that I need to change related to race? I'm not talking about watering things down but I'm talking about how it's presented so that it's much more difficult to challenge. And, and that's a trick when it comes to I th the gender issues, I think are the hottest, uh, uh, especially the trans issue, but, uh, but it, it relates to social class. It relates to disability. It relates to race and ethnicity and it relates to activism in a in the politics chapter and so on. So, so this is an issue for that goes far beyond those states. No, well, well said. So, how you know what you know is one thing, but how you speak and write about it is another. Yeah. In ways that you haven't experienced for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so, you're right. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And well, I was raised by two very conservative Catholics, members of the John Birch Society, and uh, and who retreated to a Catholic cult in Wisconsin so uh, so they could avoid the 
drugs, sex, and rock and roll that that existed in Chicago at the time, and uh, and I I learned how to interpret what they were saying, how to respond, and how to make points uh, with them, and that prepared me for a lot of what. I'm facing right, we have faced in the past and what I'm facing now. And it helps me when I talk to my colleagues who are facing that too. Well, I really appreciate your frankness in sharing some of those personal details, which I think are terrifically important. I, when I meet friends who grew up somehow with politics very different and epistemologies very different from that of their families, I'm always amazed. It fascinates me as to how that happens, especially <laughs> if all the siblings are like the parents, right? And there's sort of one holdout yeah. <laughs> who's a peacenik or whatever it is. We don't even use those terms anymore. Um, yeah. So I really value what you've said, Jay. And I wonder if now I could just throw it to you in case there are things you'd like to add to the already very rich uh, offering that you've given us in the last hour. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that's really important to me is the demise of the culture of childhood play. And 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 this relates to uh, youth sports and how they've uh, moved to younger and younger ages and with, with organized uh, leagues and teams. And, and when you combine that with the new technology that that is put in children's hands uh, that keeps them busy and down rabbit holes uh, during hours and hours of the day. What's happening is that the whole notion of creating your own play activities with peers and uh, creating informal games with rules, with rule enforcement, with adaptations related to the environment in which you're playing, all of that learning uh, that that I experienced growing up uh, is not being experienced uh, in quite as powerful a way. Uh, so, so you get now young people who are competing in sports before they know how to cooperate in sports, and good competition requires good cooperation and an agreement and consensus and uh, and young people are not uh, put in situations where they learn that so then there are sports personship issues uh, there's yelling at umpires there's all of this stuff that goes on because people haven't understood uh, why rules are necessary, why enforcement is necessary. And uh, and they don't claim ownership to the activities that they're participating in. When you create an informal game and you keep it going, that is your game. Mm-hmm. And you then identify with it in a sense. But if you just go try out for a team, you make the team, the coaches are calling all the shots, you just obey uh, and listen and obey, then then you're you, it's more difficult to claim ownership. 
And, uh, and I see that as a problem in terms of health issues, in terms of maintaining your involvement in physical activities through the life course. You know, you end up becoming spectators rather than lifelong participants. And uh, so that, I think, is a problem that I'm thinking about a lot, uh, wondering how can you revive a culture of childhood play where young people are put in positions to make decisions, collective decisions, mm. that create a spirit of of community, in a sense, that we are missing now in so much of American culture, where hyper-individualism has, has uh, uh, buried this whole notion of community responsibility. You know, it's individual responsibility, which is fine. You know, we have to be responsible. And family responsibility, but community responsibility is, there is no context within which it gets informally developed and internalized. And that's having a major impact on society as a whole. Beautifully put. So, Professor Jay Coakley, thank you so much for your time with us. It was wonderful speaking to you. So, you're welcome. <laughs>